Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Fundamentalists Podcast. My name is Elliot Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Peter Rollins. Pete, we're back. We're back. Uh, I think this might be the first ever episode that gets uploaded to YouTube.com slash The Valley I'm very excited about that. So you were able to persuade the boys. It to, took a uh, lot of, yeah. Have you yeah. seen Ozark? Uh, only the first like episode. Oh, okay. Well, there's a, a whole season where they're trying to build a casino and they're being very politician-y about it. And they're doing a lot of lobbying and that's what it was like to make yeah. sure that this guy was on the Valleycast channel. Um, for those who don't know, if you're new listeners or if you're a returning listener, um, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Uh, we have not been consistent and that's kind of our thing, which yep. is nice. Well, um, we did. We recorded one last week. Yes. Yeah, on anxiety. And because I completely forgot to turn my mic on. As a pro, as a YouTube professional. Exactly. <laughs> yes, as someone who has so many podcasts. I didn't realize I have a lot of... I'm, I don't feel like a podcaster, but now with Grace and I doing the reality show podcast and then the fundamentalists and then the Valley cast, I'm like, I should know way more about this yeah. than I do. But uh, I just don't... I think it. the truth is I really don't like equipment and I don't like technical shooting stuff I'm yeah not... no yeah you're amazing at how much you don't like that like whenever whenever yeah. we started this i thought you'd be like you know putting the camera in a certain place right. and you'd be getting everything sorted and you're like nope i just don't care <laughs> don't give just a crap turn it on and... yep <laughs> i mean i wish it's either gotta be like so good that yeah. it actually is like quality yeah. where you got different shots of people and it zooms in which is beyond my capability, or it's like, this is what you get. It's a yeah. single stagnant shot. <laughs> Maybe some people throw in some fun stuff. Like I like on the Valley cast, Ryan edits that and he throws in all these little like jokey things, little clips and the sides. I'm like, this makes it so much more interesting to listen to uh, or watch. But this is uh, this is this is a bare bone. This is about brain and and philosophy yeah and really heady stuff no fun that's no it. Fun. This, this is a no fun podcast yes. a no entertainment zone no yeah. entertainment yeah just as a recap because it has been a while pete first yeah. of all how are you doing we're in quarantine right now yeah and um quick bio from your perspective oh. for people who maybe would just or like who is this guy again yeah yeah so uh how am i is that the first question? that's the first one the most yeah. important yeah, I'm doing good. I've been uh, just doing what everybody else in the world's been doing. Um, so that's fine. And uh, yeah, I'm a, a writer, philosopher type, kind Love of, um, yeah, interested in, uh, it's very hard to describe who you are. I hate it. Every, you know, if you describe who you are and then you, you look at that, it's like, that's not me. It feels yeah. very weird. So it's very, uh, also you have, um, you have an amorphous job. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I do. Yeah. And like most of my friends do. And it's difficult to put it on a, put a label on it. Yeah. Put it on um, a business card. But you're a smarty pants. You're a smart man. Well, thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that I am, but thank you. Uh, and I enjoy our conversations and we try to mix in life experiences with your philosophical studies and your philosophical ideas on things. This particular episode is about anxiety, which is the same topic that we had yeah. last week. Yeah. Um, rest in peace, that episode. That was a good episode. It was a good episode. Yeah, it was ah. good. Yeah. Um, but it was just... It, it was even better when I listened back because I couldn't hear you at all. I could I just know. hear my bits. So Yeah, good uh. for you. That's the way to fix it. And for people at home, that's also a good way to fix it um for everyone at home everyone's at home uh yeah i, I was like an episode where i'm not re recording my mic uh is basically just a really nice conversation that we had so now we're just gonna have the conversation again. yeah but exactly it's a podcast if we're recording if we're not recording it's just a talk so anxiety a lot of people are experiencing it right now pete a lot of people are are hold away 
Uh, a lot of people have forgotten how to be social around people. Even this feels kind of weird for me because I've been, I haven't seen another human being in a while, <clears throat> save for necess- uh, necessary trips out or whatever. But like, this is just a, str- do you feel strange? Do you feel weird? Does it like, like in my mind, I'm like, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk, we're going to pick up where we left off riding a bike, but there is something really weird about this whole thing. Or do you not feel that way? Uh, yeah, it is weird. It is weird. Yeah. Um, but I am kind of, I'm interested in how pe- different people are responding in different ways. And that's interesting as some people get anxious and then they get, they get drawn into kind of conspiracy theories like psychotic anxiety. And then some mm-hmm. people are kind of um, uh, finding it just kind of very re- people who are reclusive, I guess. This is just business as usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people who who yeah. are uh, who have already made a point to cut out the rest of the world exactly. or like, yeah, this is all right. Yeah. I, can keep I just feel it. like everybody else is now living like like I live. You know, it is strange. The um, it's 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 weird to me that it is a fight to get people to stay home. There is kind yeah. of a, a thing where I'm like, this is a gift. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to not have to hang out with people or go to work and we're still having to be like you need to stay home it's like i don't how is that a hard sell for people that's true but i guess people love being out like it seems i it also seems like on the internet introversion and social anxiety are such hot topics where people are i can't go i can't do this i love i'm an introvert and then when something like this happens it's like where are all those people all of a sudden it seems like everybody wants to run out and be like gallivanting yeah well when it's been prohibited it makes it all the more exciting there it is now we're getting into it (laughs) and pascal once said he said like something to the extent that uh the world's problems could be sorted if we all just were able to learn to be uh to sit in a chair on our own in silence yeah but it's very very hard for us to do we want to keep our lives busy because it's not it's not that anxiety is created it's more that we confront the anxiety that's always been there and that's what busyness kind of hides us hides from us oh yeah the 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 sitting on the couch and watching tv while playing a video game and looking at reddit and social media (laughs) is uh yeah it definitely it do you you can sit in a chair by yourself and just Uh, yeah but is that just because of your crippling depression or because <laughs> you like it? How are you doing with the solitude? Do you like it? Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. Let's keep it. Um, we're also social distancing for those who yes. are just listening and not watching. We are definitely over six feet apart. We have not touched or made out like we normally do. Yep. But let's dive in, Pete. Anxiety. Okay. What do you got? Yeah. So I thought this time round we would maybe, I'd like to start with the idea of freedom and Emmanuel Kant and talk about okay. what he means by the word freedom. And then that's going to lead us into what uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard calls spirit. Great. And then that will lead us into a definition of anxiety. So I was thinking oh, at the end wait. of this podcast, we could have a, a really solid kind of definition of anxiety, what it is. I hope that um, makes people feel comfortable and safe, and I have a feeling it won't. Yeah, there you Perfect. go. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to start off with Immanuel Kant because he, uh, in some of his work, was trying to work out are we free? Because there's that basic... Free will. Free will. Basic idea is like, is everything determined? Is everything just a crazy chain of cause and effect? Yeah. Right back to the beginning. And Kant had three phases where he tried to answer this. Um, and the third phase is the interesting one. So the, the first phase very quickly is he he was like, yeah, everything is completely determined. Uh, and then freedom... Predetermination. It, predetermination, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not predestination. Predestination is like the Calvinist thing, right? When you're like, 
the people who are going to hell, you're going to, yeah. people who are going to heaven are chosen, basically. But that's kind of a, like a theological version of it. No, predestination is you, there's nothing you can do. Like your, your eternal destiny is, is signed, yeah. sealed, and delivered. Which would be, okay, keep going before yeah. we die. Yeah, yeah, let's keep oh, no. going. Okay, yeah, well. I don't want to, because okay. it wouldn't, this is good, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a very freeing philosophy if you believe that? If you believe that there's that's, nothing oh, yeah, you can well, do? See, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, that, that's actually where I think the interesting bit of that philosophy is because if you no longer, right, if you're damned no matter what, party then, time that what's up party time either party time or if you're nice you're just doing it because you're nice like rewards taken out of it so there is a theory that actually calvinism is a is an ethical frame i.e nobody acts because of eternal reward you either are an asshole or nice just mm. because because nothing you can do can change anything so it actually reveals uh the type of character you've got so but, that that is an interesting uh, kind of reading of that okay but uh, that's not what i was thinking of let's get back yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, um but yeah kant's first thing was freedom is simply that you subjectively countersign your fate so you can't do any so basically you're not free if you're locked in your house and you want to go out you're not free but if you're locked in your house and you do want to go out you're free yeah because your subjective desire is countersigning your fate yeah, it's um I've had this with stand up. I've been like I don't like stop doing LA stand up shows a while back. And now like a month into this thing, uh the fact that there's not stand up shows out there that I could go do stand up on is like weirding me out. I'm like yeah. I want to go do stand up. I want to go do stand up, but it's because it's I can't do it. And if uh, yeah. it, when it is there, I'm like no, I'm good. Yeah. Well, that's going to get us to actually what anxiety is that very feeling of the 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 not at oneness of your desire with your actions so that's great that's where this is going but but Kant's first attempt is simply to say freedom is embracing the facticity of your existence countersigning what is already going to happen and then he started to feel that that wasn't great that's a very weak form of freedom and so he he uh, developed a, a kind of a more substantial notion of freedom which is a uh, uh, yeah, very briefly, he thinks that there's a phenomenal world, the world of our experience. Mm -hmm. Everything we see, everything we feel, and that's determined. Everything in the world of empiricism is determined. But he says that there is a noumenal realm. There's a realm that is outside of the empirical world, and it's it's pure freedom. And it's it's almost like if you have a chain of cause and effect, right? Everything's determined except for one thing, which is the first thing. Because the first thing doesn't have a cause, sure. so it's the uncaused cause. So he he says that there's an there's an element of the universe that is spont spontaneous, and uh, but that he, was like forever ago. Well, yeah, well, forever ago, but also he thinks that it interweaves with the phenomenal world presently. So, okay. So he he seems to think that you know that freedom still permeates everything. Um, is this like? What time, what, like, do you know the era that this guy lived in? Yeah, so it's like, he's writing this in 1790s around Oh, is it that, there. it's that old? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he was that old. I thought Kant was like, Yeah, he's, he's the birth of the Enlightenment, so he's the birth of kind of modern philosophy. So what is, do you know a lot about the world in which, comparatively speaking, he would have lived in? Like, did he have, did he have fame before he died? Because he, uh, if he's having people come to him and be like, "This is your first draft of what freedom is. Try it again." Like, what, <laughs> is it? Is this all in academia? Kind of in the like, 
the upper ups. Like it's not like it was a cool. It's not like philosophy was ever cool, cool. back then. Yeah, well, although it was mainstream. cooler, it was a more mainstream than probably it is now in, in America and France. There's still a bit of a scene, but yeah, but can't I don't know how well known is, but he definitely he he wrote up half a dozen books uh, when he was young. And they weren't that interesting. And then he wrote this famous book and that's what made him a famous philosopher. That gotcha. was the critique of pure reason. Cool. And that's what kind of made him famous. But I don't know, I don't know how well known he was outside of philosophy. That's a good question. I'm terrible at biography, you know. And this is, I mean, this is uh, adapting what he says to um, anxiety, but like what is his big, like... His big idea? If you were to see like, yeah, like at a cartoon of him somewhere that was like a memory, like a flashcard or something, what would it say to, what yeah. was his big, what was his uh, brand? His brand was that we don't have access to ultimate reality. Uh, our minds um, are structured in such a way, we experience the world in a, in a certain way, but we don't have access to what he calls it, what the thing is in itself, what reality is in itself is kind of like closed off to us. And then, so what he did is he tried to draw the limits of our reason. He kind of drew out what we can know and what we can't know. Mm. So he's very important for science because he kind of drew out how sciences can explain the natural world. And then he said, basically what's called metaphysics um, doesn't really get us anywhere. So when you start asking questions about, uh, whether the universe has a first cause he says you're not going to get anywhere interesting yeah. okay so that's what he did and then and then there's a whole pile of stuff people come after him to critique that or whatever but he he did this phenomenal work where he basically said that um yeah that human beings have to think in a certain way and we don't have access to ultimate reality i uh i heard this theory one time that was unaware or when but it was like basically because we evolved to basically promote reproduction and survival, there is a theory that everything we see and our sensory experiences themselves could be complete lies based on the uh, based on what we need to survive. Like if we were surrounded right now by just the most horrific, cataclysmic apocalyptic scene in the world um it might behoove us as a species to perceive it in a different way but i was like that's kind of crazy that's like very science fictiony a little bit where it's like we're walking amongst things that we don't know about it's also got like a ring of like the old evangelical like spiritual warfare thing to it where it's like oh no there's monsters there could be monsters everywhere right now but it's in our best interest evolutionarily to not <laughs> be able to see them it's fun it's a fun idea yeah. I, I don't believe it but it's yeah. cool that, that there's there's a little bit of that that, that that's kind of like a, a kind of like caricature of what Kant's saying but oh really because right. Kant's kind of saying that we we're surrounded by a world that we can only experience through intellectual categories and sense experience yeah and so we don't have access to it beyond the what he calls the the transcendental categories and we don't have access to it beyond our sensory perceptions so good. yeah it's so, so yeah. funny it's like um there's a uh, all those studies in like clinical psychology of how you can't trust your senses and how like you remember things completely differently yeah. and <clears throat> Uh, Malcolm Gladwell who we've talked about on this podcast who you love and are a huge fan of and agree with everything <laughs> that he says um he has a, a very good podcast on like the Brian Williams thing that happened where Brian Williams, the news anchor got under a bunch on a bunch of trouble because he kind of fabricated the story. And then he started talking about basically making a case for 
events that happen. Um, I forget the. I don't know the story. Brian yeah, Wilson. yeah, he got um, kicked off of NBC. Now he's on MSNBC or whatever something, but um, for basically fudging a story about being in like a helicopter that went down on, okay. on in the war in Iraq or something, and all these people were like. All the soldiers were like, no, he was in another helicopter. He wasn't in this. And, da, da, da. and he apologized for it later. But Malcolm Gladwell then went into all of these things about events that can happen that are very rare, that are so uniting that it gives a very um, rare opportunity to be able to study certain elements of psychology, like 9-11 happening in the way the Twin Towers falling and all this stuff. And people will remember in vivid detail yeah. where they were and be completely wrong about it. Um, which I think is really cool yeah. and kind of crazy. You see that with ki- like with there's a certain age where kids, if if one kid falls, the other kid cries because they're so the kind of it's called kind of an interjective projective stage where they're not they're not one and they're not two. They're in this weird kind of yeah. mix where they're they're kind of in between. And so you know one person is hurt and they they feel it in their body. So crazy. Um, yeah. And so in in times of very big crisis and trauma, yeah, people people's distinction between subject and object kind of yeah. clues again. And in that space, you can remember something that never happened to you that you you witnessed, but weirdly you remember it as if it was happening to you. Yeah, it's yeah. nuts. And it can it it just is your. I mean, I assume it has something to do with your brain trying to protect you against something that you don't understand, yeah. which can probably lead into a lot of the other stuff we're going to talk about. With and it's this. also, it's also our most, most primal experience. Like with the infant is not a subject yet. So like our most primal experience is this kind of, it's a time called transitional kind of transitional relationship where you're not separate from say your mother, but you're not one with her and you have a teddy bear as a transitional object. But like, that's a very primal experience of being human is that before we feel ourselves separate from the world, we feel ourselves weirdly intertwined. That's part of it, yeah. Part of it, yeah. We, we don't There's no boundary. We, yeah, where we start and stop. And that's why, you know, psychotic experiences, people don't know where their body is, out-of-body experiences. But that's actually a primal kind of experience. I read, um, and this is kind of a plug, but I read that article in like nybooks.com or whatever that was uh, from, I'm blanking on her name, you know her, uh, Webster. Jim- oh, Jameson Webster. Oh, yeah. yeah it uh, was. Did you read it? Oh, yeah. Her, a New York Times article? About, New York Times, something like that. It yeah, was, yeah. Well, yeah. which one? Because I, I think there's only the one. She's written lots in various places. Oh, really? I'll read more. I really love the, the way she wrote it. It was called Psychoanalysis and a Plague. And it was basically like about, it opens on how Freud uh, is writing a letter about the death of his daughter and sort of talking about psychoanalysis in a, in a plague and using it, I guess, figuratively. I don't know. I didn't really understand it. But um, it was like her, her experience doing psychoanalysis in, in a quote unquote plague where she is supposed to be the thing that people transfer onto. But as a result of this big unifying cataclysmic event, uh, for the first time she's getting inquiries from her patients being like, are you okay? How is this going? And it was interesting to read because I've had similar experiences. I don't do psychoanalysis, but my therapist is, I'm like, uh, I used to ask him how he was doing, but then very early on, he told me that like, I'll always say that I'm doing fine or I'm doing well. He was like, it's not, um, 
He's like, even if I'm not, he was like, even, and he was like, even if I'm having a horrible day, I'll just tell you I'm, I'm fine. And so then I kind of stopped asking, but now with this whole thing, I'm like, how you, how are you doing? And he's like, good. He's like, it's good to see a human. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> great, thank you. We sit very far apart. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah. yeah, psychoanalysis in a plague, blah, 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 uh, changes your perspective, very unifying, remember things differently, brain's crazy. Let's get back to yes. Kant. Well, yeah, and then the, this third stage of Kant is where it gets really interesting, and this can help us understand anxiety. Sweet. So the third, his third way of theorizing freedom, is when he he starts to go, okay, everything in the physical world is cause and effect. Everything is a chain of of a network of 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 uh, deterministic um, uh, chains. Yeah. Uh, but he says something kind of interrupts that world of pure cause and effect, and he calls it a categorical imperative. And a categorical imperative, so basically he talks about what's called hypothetical imperatives, and that's where we decide to do something because of our desire. I want to eat that, I want to buy that, right? We've got, we've got all of these decisions we make, and they're based on our desires, and all of those are determined by how we grew up and our biology, mm-hmm. chemistry, all of that. But then he says, in the midst of that, creatures of language, human beings, um, they feel that their world is invaded by something that transcends desire, that something that transcends uh, uh, cause and effect. And it is a demand to act in a way that is indifferent to your desire. So basically, it's called a categorical imperative. It's when you feel that there's some way, something you should do no matter how painful it is or something that you shouldn't do no matter how uh, much pleasure you would get from doing it so you know we this is this is an experience we all feel if you're taking a bribe there's a small part of you that thinks i shouldn't take a bribe even though i'm getting money i'm getting something there's a small part of you says that i should just refuse this and so kant says to be human is to experience this realm of the purely rational that's that's not connected to desire at all. Yeah. That actually, and even if you don't ever act on it, you feel it, right? There's this, to be human is to feel this, this interruption of the rational that's got nothing to do with how good or bad it is for you. So is Kant saying that freedom basically is taking a stand, basically going, this is what, but it's not necessarily, that's still, I guess, how you feel but it's not, it's not your emotions driving it. It's like your rational brain going, this is the conclusion you came to. This is what you're going to do. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it was like two plus two equals four, right? So at a rational level, doesn't matter how much you want it to be five, no matter how much you think about it, two plus two equals four. That's kind of like a, it's a truth, no matter how invested you are. He thinks that, that we experience that type of imperative, that type of demand in our lives that is is basically, you know, you should never say murder an innocent person, no matter what, okay. no matter what. And it's, and it's nothing to do with your pleasure or your pain. And the funny thing is, it's not about you doing it. It's just literally that this enters your world. You can't help but experience this, yeah. this, this imperative. And this is where I, you know, I, where I differ from Kant a little bit, but the idea is this is, it's that that this means we're no longer embedded in the world. We would be animals if we just had a hypothetical imperative. We'd just be purely embedded in our world. Now, explain the hypothetical imperative versus the categorical, categorical imperative. Well, one more time. Yeah, so hypothetical imperative is where you have choices 
whether I'll have tea or coffee uh-huh. and you choose related to your desire. Okay. You, so it's, it's just, it's purely what, what can't cost pathological. What it's just what you desire, what you your want. Your thing. Utilitarian, maximizing your pleasure and minimizing your Great. pain. And then the categorical imperative is this sense that there are some things that we should do, um, whatever the cost. There's some actions that are beyond calculation, beyond desire. Hmm. And it's just the very fact that that is an experience is a short circuiting of our determinism. We're short circuited. We, we suddenly feel like we're, co- we suddenly start to feel like, what should I do? How yeah. should I act? That questioning that maybe a snail doesn't have or a rock doesn't have, we have. So I'm usually able okay. to connect as you're talking to what we're going to get to. And I yeah. can't right now. So how does this? Yes. Let's keep, keep, let's going. keep going. Right. So, so what, what you're left with with Kant is this idea that we as human beings, we're going along in our world of cause and effect and something keeps entering our world and destabilizing it and kind of causing us to go, should I really do this? Should I not? So then Soren Kierkegaard comes along and he says that this experience of not being at one with yourself, of questioning, of going, what should I do? How should I act in the world? He calls that experience of um, deadlock, he calls that spirit. So what is spirit for Kierkegaard? It is the fact that we are not at one with ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're in the world, but not of it. We we question, what does it mean to be human? What should I do? Who am I? Okay. Those questions, which are which are a result of this short circuiting. Um, and, and, and Kierkegaard says that's called spirit. Okay. And, and he also calls it the dizziness of freedom, this experience of what should I do? Who should I be? Right. The question. I just used that phrase on uh, my girlfriend the other day. We were talking about this whole experience, obviously. And uh, it, we were mentioning the, the dizzy. I said, I think Kierkegaard calls it the dizziness of freedom where there's so many options of things to do and there's so many things we feel like we should be doing that we are basically stuck in a paralysis of inaction yeah that's it and that and that experience is exactly why you know this is why for Kierkegaard he's like the first existentialist that mm-hmm. becomes massive for them because the idea for the existentialist is kind of like everything is freedom that this paralysis this feeling of yeah I don't know what I should do like a dog is a dog a cat's a cat a human's like, what should I do? What does it mean to be human? Should yeah. I answer the phone to my parents or should I not? Should I see my friends? Like every time we question, we are showing evidence of the short circuitness of our life. <laughs> In fact, we're just like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. And, uh, and it's funny that I love the way Kierkegaard calls that spirit. It's very... Yeah, I don't get why he calls it spirit. Why does he call it spirit? Because it's it's what makes us singular. If we were purely caught up in cause and effect, we would just be... Uh, autonom- automatons, yeah. uh, robotic machines. Um, if we were purely caught up in reason, we'd also be not free. We'd just be pure rational kind yep. of beings. The fact that we're in the middle, the fact that we're kind of short-circuited by the two is what makes us individuals. It's what makes us singular. And he basically, he calls that antagonism spirit, okay. which is connected to the philosopher Hegel. Um, 
I'm you came ready to play today, Pete. <laughs> right. Well, I feel that this might be a heavy one. This is a heavy one, one, yeah. That's for, for, for the Valley folk. Yeah, I like channel. it. <laughs> but you know what? It's going to be very practical. If people keep going with us, yes. it's about to hit the ground. The 40 people the that are still with <laughs> us, thank you. Yes. Okay, well, then where does it hit the ground? This is it. Then Kierkegaard calls the feeling of the dizziness of freedom, this feeling of, I don't know what I need to do. The, the rug's been pulled away from me. I'm, I, I'm experiencing what's called negation. I'm experiencing a lack. I don't know what I should do. Yeah. That's what he calls dread or anxiety. There we go. So there we go. So we train finally... just pulled into the station, everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Long ass train. Yep. <laughs> but and, but the key is, the reason why I wanted to take the time to get there is because if you follow that route, you get to the point of going, oh, anxiety is essential to being human. It's the, it's the evidence of our spirit. It's the evidence of our freedom yeah is anxiety because anxiety is precisely the sense of i'm not who i think i should be or like or there's imposter syndrome i'm not who i am mm-hmm. or there's guilt i'm not who i would like to ethically be or there's the existential dimension i lack meaning um all of these that one's my favorite oh yeah that's the, that's a that's good the one. biggie <laughs> um i was talking i think we were doing a live stream me joe and steve the other day uh and we were talking about Santa Steve, the, the oh, character yeah, Steve does. Good, yeah. And he was talking about how people often have expressed to him privately that uh, before being on the video or being sitting on his lap, they got so, they experienced so much anxiety and so much nervousness about sitting on this uh, Mexican man's dirty lap. And mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, it's not, I was like, all right, like people, I was like, you're a grown man wearing a Santa costume saying incredibly inappropriate things to other grown adults while they sit on your lap. Like, that's not, I was like, they should feel some level of anxiety. And he <laughs> yeah. felt really bad about it. And I was like, it's like, this, and Joe made a great point where it's like, people want to match your, your funny. And they, so they get in their heads about it and they get nervous. And I was like, it's stage fright. Like, stage fright before you go, like, if I'm about to go do stand up and get on stage, there is a, a nervousness there and an anxiety, but I know that if I don't have that, it's not going to be a good show because something in me isn't, isn't fully there. Yeah. And that experience of them sitting on the lap. Yeah. That's anxiety. It's an unknowing. They don't know what's going to happen. So what Steve's able to create is this experience where you do not know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I guess for a comedian, although not for, um, what do you call it? Improvisation. But, but if you're doing a set, you know exactly where it's going. You know what you're doing. So you yeah. feel less anxiety. Yeah, there's a little bit more yeah. of a, yeah, I have you, monkey bars I can hold on to a little exactly. bit. You're in control, you know, but when you go into an environment where you don't know what's going to happen, yeah. that that's, again, what Kierkegaard calls anxiety because you're confronting a type of unknowing, a type of radical discontinuity. Um, yeah. And and that and that that is at a, at a basic level what anxiety is. It kind of, there's other ways to kind of like, kind of make it a bit more, flesh it out a bit more. But for Kierkegaard, primarily, we have this sense that we're in the world, but not of it. We, we, we call that not at oneness with the world. We call that spirit. And spirit, the evidence of spirit is anxiety. Mm-hmm. But the danger is we try to hide from the anxiety. So we try to have structures that make everything work. So, you know, like the obsessive who keeps everything in its place who can't stand anything being out of place yeah um they're trying to control their environment or we try to disavow the anxiety or we try to 
or we get drawn by it. For Kierkegaard, it's like, no, there's a, there's a way of somehow embracing our anxiety. Um, That's but, nice. But in this current climate, it, again, people feel anxious just because everything's uncertain whether that's their jobs, whether it's their life or whether it's the government, like the anxiety is produced by you. What Nietzsche would say by staring into the abyss, we encounter the, the void at the very core of reality in moments like this. Yeah. It's, um, the, it's like the, uh, being like, okay, this, uh, this whole thing could crumble. Yeah. The whole system could crumble. And then you're like, well, Fortunately, there are structures in place that are so rock steady and so pure, like the presidency of the United. Okay, well, now that guy's in office and he's kind of revealing that there's a lot of BS around this whole thing, for better or worse. And now we have a pandemic and we have and then the meat. Then you have people who hate them. Yeah, it's all just like, yeah. Uh, it's all falling apart <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and f- realizing that it, it's falling apart and could continue to fall apart leads to the inevitable conclusion that, Oh, okay. So all of this could go, which means I could go. And yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, there's a, there's a famous painting and Lacan uses this as an example of what's called the gaze. But if anybody's listening still, uh, it's called, they're listening. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Uh, Hans Holbein's the ambassadors. So if you if they type it in, you see it. There's a this famous painting called The Ambassadors. And when you look at it, it's two people. They're very, uh, they're young and powerful. They've got uh, symbols of authority and wealth all around them. So you're looking at this very classical painting. And it's two people who uh, are, are figures of authority, figures of culture, figures of intelligence. Mm-hmm. But there's a weird blot at the bottom of the painting. And it's so out of place. You just see this little blot. But then if you look at the painting from an angle, the blot suddenly turns into a skull and the skull is staring at you. But you only see it if you look at the painting from the bottom left hand angle and look up at it and that blots a skull. That experience is like the experience of seeing that within the solid order of reality, there is this tear. There is this lack and and it's it's staring at you which is kind of what uh nietzsche means when he says if you stare into the abyss the abyss will stare into you it's this experience of you encounter the non-at-oneness of everything you experience the lack that exists within Mm -hmm. reality and that experience of of the skull looking at you is kind of the experience of anxiety well that's cool yeah um I want to see that painting now. Yeah, it's a really cool painting. Um, it's right there, actually. I would really? Tell. Yeah, it's, I really like it. Well, we can you, we can put it in the thing. Um, two guys. Okay, this is not at all what I. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've seen this before. And then yeah, you look at it from that angle, and it's, it's yeah, yeah. That's fun. One of those like forced perspective things. Yeah, I mean, it's a very old painting. It's really funny that Holbein's doing something so interesting. You know, I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, the staring into the abyss thing, especially because it's like, I don't know, I feel like this is such a great, we should, this is such a bad time for us not to be consistent with this podcast because it's <laughs> such a good time for, I think, people to be like exploring a lot of these things. But the idea of staring into the abyss is so interesting because I know that when I, I feel like it's happening or when I'm like going somewhere mentally, going down that, that rabbit hole, there is a sense of weird invasion that happens where it's like, I feel so separate 
from everything in this whole experience and, and, and in life in general. Like my my inner world is very loud and, and very entertaining and I'm comfortable mm-hmm. there. But when I get into that zone and I look into the abyss, uh, which is very dramatic sounding, there is a feeling of like permeation almost that, that to me doesn't feel necessarily like nothing is a one. It almost feels like I, it, it, it feels like it's connecting everything like the, yeah. the, the, the death of every, the permeation of, of just it, the, the, the house of cards yes. thing is going, is we're a part of all of it. So yeah. no, that, that, and that's the key. I mean, the difference between, you know, Soren Kierkegaard and then kind of new age philosophies or perennial philosophies is that some of these new age philosophies, they're all about the one, oneness, and they're all about finding a substantial whole. Yeah. But Kierkegaard and the direction he pulls is all about finding that, the what's called the not at oneness of the one, the fact that everything is, um, is there's tears within reality. But the thing is that Kierkegaard's doing is he's saying that when you encounter the abyss, when you encounter the fact that everything is fragile and and there's chaos hard baked into reality actually that's not terrifying that's where the salvation is that's where when you become comfortable with that you realize that we're all in the same boat that that whenever i feel anxious that's a reflection of something true about the nature of reality and the yeah. nature of everything and and the key is when i don't think like that i always fantasize that someone has it all together. We've talked about this before, but yeah. you start to fantasize someone who doesn't, who's not in deadlock with themselves. You start to fantasize others who are, who've got it all together. But when you see into the abyss, you realize that uh, sometimes the people who say they've got it all together are just the ones who are covering over their despair. That's what Kierkegaard would say. They're just covering over their despair. Yeah, That, that actually staring into the, realizing that we're all alone. Yeah. Realizing that we're all kind of alienated is what frees us from alienation. I was thinking the other day about, because when you mentioned the um, the imagining someone else out there that has it all together, I was thinking about how my mom and a lot of moms, they're so good at folding laundry. Like it's like everything yeah. is just really nicely stacked and flat. And, uh, and I was like, that's such, I was like, they just moms have it figured out like they know how to make the food they know they do the dishes and they know how to like like and then dads can come in and they can change the bulbs and they could fix the water heater and they i'm like parents just knew growing up parents just know things they just got it they figured it out and then i was like wait a minute that's not true at all. They don't know what yeah. they're doing. And even if they know how to fold stuff, they only know how to fold stuff because they've been folding stuff for way longer than they wanted to have been folding because stuff. Because you're means, lazy and don't fold Exactly, your stuff and yet. I'm a sniveling <laughs> snot kid. And yeah. so now my mom has this incredible talent where she can fold my laundry well. And the only reason she could do it well is because she had to, and she probably resents it because she could have been spending that time painting and becoming a person that was actually who she wanted to be rather than this laundry folding, you know, stay-at-home mom. So <laughs> it was a fun little thought process of being uh, like, oh yeah, she does know what she's yeah. <laughs> she probably is upset about the very thing that i'm like idolizing i'm like yeah. wow how does she know how to load the dishwasher that well and it's like because you, that's what that's what she did and yes. it's like doesn't mean that she's got it all figured out but from my perspective growing up it was like this is what an adult is this is what life is it's someone who pays the bills i don't know how to balance a checkbook to this day i have no idea how to do it but when i yeah. hear that term i go that's an adult that's someone who's got it figured yeah. out and then i'm like yeah. you know i kind of i'm 33 i should probably start 
considering myself an adult. But that that's the very experience that like that's the first time where we as human beings, I think, discover a little hint of the chaos that's at the heart of the universe is when we realize that our parents are not substantial, whole, complete, complete, perfect, yeah. perfect people. And that's kind of like the first experience of um, of realizing that everything's permeated by deadlock. It's because the big before one, yeah. That, yeah, before that, you're fantasizing your parents or some other who's all together. I'm, I don't have it all together, but they do. Yeah. And um, the moment when you see your parents are, ver- even when you see kids asking their parents questions, repeatedly asking questions, often parents are going like, and sometimes it is, oh, my, my child's very inquisitive. Mm-hmm. But it can also be, you know, the enjoyment of the child discovering the impotence of the parent. It's the raptor in Jurassic Park checking everything, checking every wire for the weakness so it can escape. Oh, oh very good. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, so it's like, it's like, oh, look, my child's very inquisitive. No, they Don't. just want... <laughs> they're finding find your, it. They're yeah. finding your weakness. Why? 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 <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And then the kid's dead. Um, yeah, they say I, they say, don't meet your heroes, but the only thing worse is being created by them. There you go. There's oh. a fun tidbit for you what was the second i never heard the second bit that because i've heard them saying never meet your heroes but never. the only thing worse is being created by them which is your parents ah but i oh. just made that up oh did you just oh, yeah okay <laughs> it's a philosophy i'm the most philosopher yeah um so the new age stuff that i've been thinking a lot about uh my own inability to put any of this into words that actually makes sense because i'm such an arm you i just get my information from you regurgitate it and make it sound like i thought of it myself yeah. um not really, but a lot of times. But the uh, the the unifying theory um, between so many of these things is like the connectedness of the new age uh, world and this oneness. Mm-hmm. And then there is this, uh, you know, the dualistic like there's the bad stuff in the world, but the darkness is what allows there to be light. And without the darkness, you cannot have light. And then you get into psychoanalysis. That's like, there's only darkness, <laughs> but there are blips of light along the way. And if you enter the, all the darkness, it's light on the other side. And it's all, it's so interesting because all these things I feel like complement one another, mm. but I don't think that they're necessarily in line. Um, and it's fun to kind of all a cart, like take certain things in certain moments. And I like doing that, but I also... I was thinking about the title for my uh, my next stand up thing. I was thinking Ooh. about the title "Magical Thinking." That's the working title right now. Um, nice and getting nice. into because I want to do a, a bit on being a wizard uh, and how I am a wizard and prove it through like all of these coincidental crazy things that have happened as a result of my quote unquote magical thinking. Which obviously it's all going to be um, it'll be true stories, but building a sarcastic conclusion. Yeah. Um, but in in thinking about it and in kind of outlining it, I was getting into like the there's that like the secret you say what you want and then it, you put it out there and eventually it happens. Um, and it's so it's just it's a fun thing and I want there I wish there was something that just connected all of it. But I guess uh, there is and it's Jesus. Yes. <laughs> but it's interesting that Kierkegaard, who was a Christian, he is really central to the idea that. Uh, what makes us human is precisely our not at oneness with ourselves. That actually, if if we were, if we always knew what we were supposed to do, or if we always got what we wanted, we would be reduced to some sort of mechanism. And that to be human is to be anxious, to be not at one with oneself, to be in deadlock and in contradiction with oneself. 
that is fast. Yeah. Yeah. I like the word mechanism. I like the idea of if you just get everything you want, you're a machine. That's like out, like it's like saying a demand and the demand's coming to you. And it's like, well, that's not, that would be very, a very boring life. Yeah. Cause it's kind of the opposite of the secret. Cause in the idea of the secret is Kierkegaard would say, if you get the secret, as in you, you got a world where you got everything you wanted, you wouldn't find yourself happy. You would find yourself disappearing. You'd find yourself melancholic. You'd find yourself losing spirit. Is that, so, it's kind of related to this, that study that came out that was like you, the, the best amount of money you can have is like five oh, yeah. to 10 million or something. Were you telling me about that? I know, but I know the theory. I don't know if I was telling you, but um, I know that the theory is because you need, you need enough that lots of things are covered. You can do whatever you want, but not enough so that you can want more. Is that part of it? Yeah, not so much that you have no, no, no uh, fear, no drive, no yeah. stress, because then it becomes kind of like probably a lot of people are experiencing being stuck in their house right now. just like, ah, I have nothing to do. Yeah. And that, that, that's, and that's why I wanted to start off with Kant because one of Kant's, and it's not what he's famous for, but actually it's maybe one of his greatest insights is he, he introduced the idea that, that, that what pulls us out of the animalistic world is precisely a short circuit. Mm-hmm. It's precisely kind of the intrusion of a demand that's impossible to fulfill <laughs> and a demand that 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 gets in that basically ties us up in knots, that gets us into a deadlock. And it's precisely that 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 basically makes us free and makes mm-hmm. us humans. And then Kierkegaard builds on that. And then you know then you move into kind of existentialism, but all of this is based on the the very notion of there's an intrusion of something into our world that short circuits us, that makes us discontent, unhappy and unsure. And that very discontent is what enables us to find joy. It's the very thing that allows us to have depth in our lives. It's such a fun, like there's like such a universal truth to that that's so obvious and yet I forget it all the time. And immediately I'm like, if I'm experiencing anxiety as a generally not anxious person, I'm like, what the heck is, what? how do I fix this immediately? Um, I know in the past, this week specifically has been the only week thus far where I've just been like, edgy and I don't realize that it's I don't even know necessarily that it is anxiety but it's something along those lines where I'm like I'm finding myself just annoyed by things and I'm kind of mm. irritable and I'm like what is this what is, what is this happening and I'm like oh I'm I'm just pissy because this is weird and it's yeah. like I'm not I'm I, I wish I was I'm not very good at being like oh I'm experiencing anxiety until after I've already been like miserable for i guess that's maybe how it works but yeah the uh the ability to identify what it is and and know that it's part is so a part of life is so comforting but i don't do that as a knee-jerk reaction as a knee-jerk reaction i'm like i'm anxious and this isn't good and this isn't good and it's a phase and it'll pass but you're right that's assuming that the 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 status quo or the default is this feeling of wholeness and goodness and it never was it's not like a pandemic happened and everybody got stressed out it's just like a pandemic happened and everybody got more stressed out or everybody realized how stressed out they already were because now they didn't have all the distractions of exactly it kind of uncovers like like a divorce or like a illness or these things often uncover the, yeah. the truth they kind of saw they, unco- they uncover the reality of the frailty and the chaos of being yeah um and uh and the trick is how to uh not run from that but somehow find a find a way to kind of embrace it right yeah yeah it's a very and i think um 
in relationships too, it's like you're 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 confronted with being present with someone the entire time. Dude, I was watching um what's his name? Um President Trump. Tr- Trump, yeah. that's right. I saw. I remembered that. Yeah. You don't like to say his name. I don't like to say his name. <laughs> Trump. Um 45. Uh but I I've was been wa- watching I've been watching I think I've watched all of them actually really? I, find, I find I find it very interesting to watch. But anyway, keep going. I find it interesting to watch for a time and then I kind of I kind of yeah. turn it off. But um he was someone was asking about I want to get your thoughts on this and this may or may not be related to to what we're talking about. But um somebody was asking about the rise in in domestic violence that has gone up as a result of people staying home all the time. Crime decreased, domestic violence shoots up. Mm-hmm. And Trump's response was basically along the lines of, this is why we need to get people back to work. We need to get people back to work because they these people need to be out of the house. They need to be separated from each other so that they're not getting hurt. And on one end, I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, like you need to get away from an abusive situation, but it's assuming that they're going to stay in that abusive situation and it's yeah. assuming that the job and the work that they do, the labor that they perform is not only to put food on the table, but also to keep them literally a form of protection <laughs> from their partner. Yeah. And I was like, that seems bad. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know exactly how, I mean, because sure, we all should get back to work. This is why we got to go back. We got to go back to work. We got to go back to work. But to throw in not getting beat up by your partner or abused by your partner as a reason for you to head back to that job yeah. uh, seems gross. Yeah, no, that's funny because, you know, I can completely understand why oh, in the heat of the moment, that was a the kind of a, a good basic answer is, yeah, we need to get people out there. They're getting, you know, they're getting antsy. antsy. But, it but is what does that, that say? You're, you're saying is like, because in one sense, it's just exposing the, the dysfunctionality that the relationship already was. Yeah. Like that's what it's doing. So it's kind of like, but he, but he couldn't say, he couldn't say, well, it's just showing that that relationship was already dysfunctional. You just didn't know it. That's until, true. You know, which he would, yeah, you can't really say that. But that is a, an interesting point you're making is that if when you're in the, in the same space as your partner and it all blows up, maybe that's just exposing a, 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 yeah, a fundamental yeah. crisis in the relationship that somehow you've hidden for 10 years. Yeah, which is, it's weird <laughs> yeah. to see a Republican president uh, when faced with a question about an inherent problem uh, that is like spread throughout the system, just be like, yeah, we well, just you should go to work and work harder is what you should do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like that, that'll solve it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same That's time, yeah, funny, yeah. It, he couldn't turn around and, and be like, well, you know, yeah, legal Zoom does divorces too. Yeah. So deal with it that's very good that that reminds me actually of todd mcgowan has a good video online we should link to it but um but uh he talks about how ideology um is designed basically to cover over the chaos to cover over this tear in reality to cover over the chaos so ideology doesn't doesn't encourage you to look into it doesn't encourage you to tarry with it it, it tries to say everything's fine everything's good it tries to avoid a confrontation with it um so uh i think that's a really good definition of ideology by the way are you thinking you can hear that sound yeah do yeah. you can you hear it yeah but i don't think they'll hear it that's great so if we don't mention it, <laughs> yeah i don't care 
<laughs> as long as you can't hear it. It was like you talking about something and then me coming back and I can tell, you can tell that I wasn't listening, but you still summarize it a little bit. Like, And that's the definition of ideology. I'm like, oh, the air conditioning's on. I cool. could turn it off. No, I don't no, give a crap. I just, um, I, I'm just, diff- I'm new to the world again. So I'm like, wow, air conditioning. Air conditioning, yeah. Things yeah, are happening. Uh, oh yeah, no, the ideology thing is just that, that ideology's primary function is to say that everything's good, everything's under control, is to kind of get your life into that type of mechanical kind of thing. Jedi mind tricking yourself. Yeah. And then so ideology critique is about creating spaces where people confront the chaos that is within their lives. Yeah. Individually and communally. The, uh, do you think that this is going to have a, a notable effect on people in terms of the a positive effect on the uh, like being forced to deal with their own anxieties? Obviously, excluding situations like that are abusive or whatever. But do you? I mean, would you ever imagine a situation in this world where everyone's at home at the same time and alone with their thoughts? No. For yeah. a philosopher, I feel like that would be like it's like Christmas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah it is. Yeah, I'd never have been able to imagine that. Yeah. That, like that. That could have happened and happened within like two weeks. Because I remember it felt like two weeks. It felt like I was talking about this coronavirus thing, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting. What's going on?" And then, kind of within two weeks, it seemed like we were all in our houses. Yeah. Like, That's it's incredible. In in, incredible. in like not overnight, but kind of overnight. Yeah. Like where it's like, okay, great. I guess we're. Uh, I was thinking about your your first um, when you were talking about Kant and the imperatives, the hypothetical imperative and the categorical imperative. And I was thinking about how in this experience, the way it started, and I'm hesitant to say this because it sounds like I'm a conspiracy theorist a little bit, but I'm not, but I am a little bit, but I'm not. It's the, 5G. It's 5G. Yeah. The towers yeah. are everywhere, yeah. um, especially in all those countries where they're, they're not. But uh yeah, the 5G thing is so great. Oh, oh God, dude, I read a friggin... Oh, my! some of my extended family or friends and family on, on Facebook share some gold sometimes, and there was one about how it's all it's the Hollywood elite that has it because of the drink that they consume called something or other that's a special type of drink that makes them famous or some shit. Wow. It's so good. And I, I was, was like, baby blood or no. Oh. Uh, it was some... some I forget the name of it, but I... Just, I, I it, I Googled it and like looked at it out of one eye because it was making me so uncomfortable that like it was being shared as though it was fact when it was just pure conspiracy theory. Anyway, Mm -hmm. categorical um, imperative versus uh, hypothetical imperative. I was thinking about that in relation to the way my brain has processed this whole experience because I remember being in London when all the news stories were breaking. And then as the social distancing... Were you in London when this... Started? I remember looking at the uh, yeah we were watching uh, the news and seeing it explode in Wuhan and we we're like oh, okay and it, and it was yeah it was uh, two weeks later that everything was wow. was locked down and all the travel was was cut off so we were like thank God we came back um, when we did because we would have been stuck in in London which would have been kind of cool actually but um, it really wouldn't have been after a while so I remember seeing this stuff and as the leaving work was happening as it was being like, okay, we're not going to come into work today. We're going to see how this goes. And then it it became running out of toilet paper and, you know, the grocery stores are empty and then Amazon's not delivering and all this stuff was sort of pilot. And then Tom Hanks had it. There was a logical mode that I tried to go into, or at least attempted a rational mode where it was like, something about this is weird and often different from the way life normally is. So I'm going to listen to what people are saying on the news. 
even though I'm not a huge fan of the media and I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to cancel the stand-up shows. I'm going to cancel the trip to with my dad and brother. I'm going to do all these things. But emotionally, I did not feel like those steps were necessary. And that's the part mm -hmm. that I don't necessarily like talking about because obviously people were like the sky was falling for a lot of yeah. people and they were experiencing that emotional thing. But I also saw the people who were completely devoid of an emotional response to this whole thing and, and were instead, those were the people that were like, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to go out. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go to the church gathering. I'm going to go to the party at spring break, blah, blah. So I was thinking like, fortunately the, I did not rely on the emotional motivation, the I want to do this, so I'm going to do it thing to to do my behavior. I at least attempted to go, I'm going to play it as safe as possible. But it didn't feel like I was doing the right thing. It didn't feel like I was doing the, um, the thing that I wanted to do. It felt like I was playing it safe and being, a, I guess, adult. Um, but I was, and then as the virus started to affect more and more people, it affected just enough people that were close to me in some way, a couple degrees removed maybe, where the emotional impact hit me like a ton of bricks as yeah. it came into my life further and further and invaded my space a little further and further, where I was like, oh my God, thank God. Like why I'm not doing enough. Like even though I was doing all the things, I was like, I need to be doing this. I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna go to, you know, we're gonna get all this like water and bunker stuff and like it went into high gear and it's yeah. just in it's very interesting to me that people need some kind of an emotional kick in the chest to do something and it's terrifying because in a situation like this that could your behavior could actually result in the death of someone you love or yourself yeah yeah well what was the conspiracy theory but you mentioned that the it's not conspiracy theory but the whole time it was happening there was a little part of me uh, that was oh, going yeah, just, i'd say no this it can't be yeah. this bad yeah. it can't be as bad as they're gonna say like the news loves to blow things out of proportion my mom put this a really good way because they're in florida and she was like it's like hurricanes she's like you every year in florida when a hurricane is coming the news acts like it is going to be the most decimating thing yeah, in the yeah, world. Yeah. It never is. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who lives in New York and he went down to Florida for when this all went down. Um, and I think he's still in quarantine, but uh, he was like, yeah, he's like, we're, we were raised in, in Florida. He yeah. was like, we were raised around a media that sensationalized everything. So there is a little bit of an inherent skepticism yeah. that comes with the media um, then when you get into politics, it's a whole other thing because it's a red state too. So then there's a hatred of the media that's like independent. Plus you have all these people blowing everything else out of proportion. So yeah. I can yeah, understand yeah. why I thought that. It wasn't necessarily a conspiracy theory, yeah. but it, it was definitely um, a little like, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory to think, to, to believe that fear produces ratings and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I also didn't want to get into that boat and be like, oh, this is just because... This is just because they want it. Because that just sounds like I'm trying to comfort myself, and it sounds like I'm trying to do so to make sense of something that is not capable yeah. of made sense of. I don't know if any of that made sense. Damn yeah. it! No, nope. I, I mean, I feel like I haven't talked in four days, so I'm like, <laughs> like vomiting words at you. Yeah, well, no, there's there's loads in that because one is that's just the 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 difficulty it is to kind of get your head around. Yeah, because even a friend of mine listened to our podcast that we put out a few weeks ago, and that was a point where we were just talking about. Maybe we should cancel stuff. I, I just canceled Wake and you were saying, oh, you know, I might might have to cancel my comedy shows to see how it goes. And then by the time it came out, which was just a few days later, it was just so obvious 
the everything had to be cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that didn't age well. <laughs> I know. It didn't age well and it didn't... Uh, yeah, because it, it, that's the great thing about the way we podcast. Yeah, it comes out later and then people are like... Of course you're gonna. Of course <laughs> you're gonna, gonna get. Yeah. And that's how yeah. it happened with me too. Yeah. That it, probably the time that podcast came out, I was sitting there going, "Thank God we I yeah. canceled that because that well, was when when you talked about that. It was literally about it was about just the timing of it. It was about two days before it became obvious that everything had to close down. Yeah. So, but it was a couple of days before. It was that point we're going. Well, am I going to have to cancel? And then literally 24, 48 hours later, it's like like obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Which also there was no. You know, there was no chain of command where it was like, who do we go to for what we're supposed to do? Like, if yeah. I, have, I have a job and I have shows, I'm used to someone going, don't go into work today, come into work. But this this was a weird mix of like, I know I'm not going to do this show and I'm just waiting on them to tell me I'm not going to do the show or no, I'm, we're not going to go into work. But shouldn't there be like a government saying don't do yeah. it? And then they did start saying it, but then... It, it wasn't super enforced at first. And then LA, we took the reins and we were just like, no, everyone's going to stay at home forever. Nothing any of you guys, nothing you're doing in this town is important anyway. So yeah. just stay yes, at home. Yes, that's right. Yeah, this is the first place that can shut down. There's no yeah. essential work happening here yeah. at all. Yeah. You don't need to do your trivia <laughs> bidet right now, Elliot. You could stay <laughs> you home. You need it. <laughs> um, yeah, the aging thing is so funny. Too. Yeah, because the, the emotional impact, the obviousness of all of it didn't hit me till. Till much yeah, later, yeah. So. But we, and we're always looking. That that's one of the ways we try to avoid anxiety. One is magical thinking, where we think that you know everything's under control, everything's great. Two is looking for an authority that that knows the truth, knows what to do, and then also uh, magical rituals that you do things that actually don't have any real effect. But as long as you do them, you feel like you you're, you're in motion. Control, yeah. yeah. But um when you kind of realize and only briefly but people will have experienced this probably at the mo at the moment is that when you get a feeling that nobody really knows what's happening that there isn't a substantial authority that has the truth now yeah. of course the government comes in and then it, it re-establishes that a little bit but you do get a sense in which it's unprecedented and even the experts are you know having to scramble that's that's a that's an opportunity for Kierkegaard to get a glimpse into something that is profoundly true yeah. of reality. And, um, and again, his, his strategy is ultimately we have to not try to run from it or avoid it, but actually be able to make peace with that, with that chaos. And then you'll make better decisions. Then you'll, you'll feel better. You'll not bury your head in the sand. You won't, you won't freeze up. You'll, so yeah. when, when it comes to making peace with anxiety, I'm assuming you don't mean a feeling of peace. You just mean a feeling of anxiety that you are at peace with. Yeah, kind of like, I suppose, a feeling of the sense that you're comfortable that nobody knows the answer. <laughs> like yeah. so, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre used an example. I think his example was this kid who didn't know whether to fight in the French resistance or to look after his elderly mother. He had these two options in front of him. And one was to make a big difference in one person's life. And the two was to make a very small difference, but in a world historical situation. And he went to, I think, a professor to basically try to find someone to tell him what to do. And what the, that young person had to realize is you're going to have to make that decision. There's nobody can tell you what 
mm-hmm. which one you should do. And you have to be comfortable with being resolute in making a decision that nobody can answer for you. Yeah, you'll never know if it was in some alternate universe the right or wrong yeah. decision. It's just, yeah, so so exactly. And by being able to be resolute in in embracing the short circuit, the kind of the, the deadlock in our subjectivity, then that's making peace with your anxiety, which means that you no longer feel anxious. But in the Kierkegaardian sense, it's not because anxiety's gone. It's just because you're comfortable with the, you're not at oneness with the world. Yeah. You're comfortable at, at being in the world, but not of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's good. That's good stuff, man. It reminds me, I was thinking of the, uh, the multiple universe theory and how we always like in popular science, there's this idea that there's infinite universes and there's a universe where I'm sitting, you know, over there and you're sitting here and that's the only difference <laughs> in the universe as opposed to the, you know, all the other ones or something. But like, I think I hate that. I think I'm over it. I don't like yeah. that. I think it's like a extension of the idea of heaven where it makes it so that there is this alternative utopia or this alternative place. There's an alternate universe where I get up every day and I eat kale and I don't eat and I recycle everything and I live off the land and I have solar. And that's the better version of me that I find myself comparing myself to or this imaginary version of myself that's out there in some other universe being like me to the umpteenth degree. And there's I just assume probably maybe not. Maybe don't even imagine that. Maybe just imagine this is what you are. This is the only version of you. This is all the time you got. And so just get comfortable. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. my advice for, for the uh, the anxiety that everybody is feeling. Which yeah, is I like, like that. I like that. Yeah, because you could think possible world theory might be a way of people avoiding their anxiety by thinking they're making the right decision in the other universe. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but no, this is uh, this is what you got. This is just this yeah. universe and yeah. we got reality shows as presidents. So we're doing we're doing our thing. <laughs> we're kind of a cool universe. Yeah. Um well, you got any takeaways? Yeah. Uh, or was that your takeaway? That was a good takeaway. That was a good takeaway. Oh, we'll take it. I'll take it. You can have it. Um the only takeaway I would say, yeah, is uh let's just keep seeing how this goes and trying to be rational and calm. And uh, I hope people, I hope genuinely that talking about anxiety as a whole and talking about these different ways of looking at it, I truly hope it helps people because um, there is a, I I do have a a very deep, I'm deeply worried about a lot of folks, um, not specifically just in sure mass. Like there's a lot of, uh, sadness and terror out there. Yeah. And so, uh, helping people is good. And also getting it, getting it in a good place with anxiety, um, seems like not only the best thing to do for yourself, but also kind of for the world, because we need to be rational and at peace right now more than ever. Yeah. Very good. Amen. Well, my takeaway, I guess my takeaway is because we've been looking at Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. my takeaway, I guess, is like from his perspective, th- there's no escape from this experience of free, the dizziness of freedom. So there's no escape. Uh, we want to try and escape and Sartre calls that bad faith. It's when we, you know, he uses the example of a waiter who actually thinks he's a waiter and that's bad faith. You you try to lose yourself in your- A, wait, a what? A waiter who thinks he's actually a waiter? Yeah, yeah, it's great. He's watching this French Parisian waiter who's serving coffee and he's being so Parisian and he's being so perfect in how he serves his coffee and Sartre's like, that guy thinks he's a waiter. Yeah. He's a waiter who thinks he's a waiter. 
that's that's and and he's always in bad faith (laughs) because to be human is always to transcend your you know identities um that's so good yeah yeah yeah. it'd be like it's like that youtuber thinks he's a youtuber yeah that's it there's a there's a good joke in there actually there's There's a very good good sketch for you to write all the youtubers i know that are like i'm a youtuber but really i just do i do comedy and you know yeah yeah like if I had a friend that was like, I do YouTube and I love YouTube and I'm a YouTuber, I'd be like, I don't know that we can we can hang out. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. you're scared. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Go ahead. So um uh you can't escape that experience for a Kierkegaard. And so the only thing you can do is you can disavow it and then it's gonna blow up in really bad ways. That's a bad one. Or you can try to explain it away, or you can try to use magical thinking, you can try there's various things you can do, but Kierkegaard will say ultimately they'll all feel the only thing you can do is find a way to sit mm-hmm. with the anxiety. And that's very difficult to do. And maybe we can do a podcast about how to do that. But you you, you find a way to, to tarry with it and to uh, embrace it. And you, you actually will find your subjectivity, your spirit within that. So it's a, it's a nice way of thinking about it. It's like you can't, you can't run from it. So don't try. You yeah. run to the ends of the earth. It'll find you there. Um, what you have to do, and it might involve art or drugs or therapy it might involve whatever but meditation with meditation you find some way in which you can confront the demons and not run from them because the demons are your freedom yeah meditation i'm a big fan of in that area because i i I love the meditation does not uh attempt to fix the anxiety at least from my my experience with it's always like sit with it acknowledge it see it and then get back to just focusing and just breathing i'm like that's so so helpful because it it does feel like a very physical way of enacting the philosophical part of just being like yeah it's here too it's gonna it's not going anywhere well thank you everybody thank you let's hope the mics were on i think the mics were on we'll find out even if it's not we're uploading it um please subscribe to the fundamentalists on itunes and if you'd like to leave us a review we appreciate it um and hopefully this episode ages better than the last one (laughs) yep (laughs) Uh, and we wish everybody the best and follow pete pete has a patreon at patreon.com slash peter rollins uh the valley folk has a patreon at patreon.com slash the valley folk and i also have a youtube channel youtube.com slash elliot morgan where you can see some of the other episodes if you have the curiosity to do so pete it's been wonderful thank you thank you bye-bye bye